Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and then verses 32 through 36. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Thank the Lord for his word. Many of the letters in the New Testament are written to people who came to Christianity Christianity out of what the early church referred to as paganism. They they worshipped all kinds of gods, all kinds of things, uh, but they didn't worship the one true God. They didn't worship the historic God of the Jewish people. But that wasn't true for all of the letters of the New Testament. This letter to the book we call the the book of Hebrews, it's a letter written to an audience that uh, was different than the majority of the audiences of those letters, not the Gospels, but the letters of the New Testament. Uh, This letter was written to Jewish converts to Christianity. These were people who grew up hearing the great stories of the faith, stories about people like Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph Joseph and Moses and Solomon and Deborah and Esther and David. These were people who had been taught from the great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, Joel and Amos and Malachi. This letter was written to God's people who had received a promise. They had waited long. They had been taught that a Messiah was coming. And they grew up in that rich heritage of faith. And along the way, they met Jesus. They saw him as their Messiah, the one that God had told them for generations that he would send. And they embraced him, and they welcomed him, and they they followed him, and lived for him, and they gave their lives to him. They found the newness of life that came through Messiah Jesus, the forgiveness of sin and the richness of grace. They grew up in that rich heritage of faith. 
they knew Jesus. They loved him. They lived for him. And they suffered for him. Their possessions were taken from them because of their unyielding declarations of faith in Jesus. They went to prison because of their faith in him. They had an unshakable belief in who Jesus was and who, what, who and what he was doing. That he was sent to take away the sins of the world. That was who this letter was written to. But it was written to them later in their journey with Jesus. Because that unshakable faith had become to, begun to waver. It began to crumble. They became weary the suffering, the persecution, the losses that they experienced because of, of following Jesus were beginning to take their toll. Doubts crept in. And this letter finds them at the point of giving up. Most of us have grown up believing that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. The King James Bible tells us so. It says right in the heading, the, uh, the letter of Paul to the Hebrew Christians. And yet, we're not really sure that it was the Apostle Paul, but it doesn't really matter because we know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And whoever it was, this pastor of this group of people was writing to his flock, encouraged them to hold on. Don't give up. Don't turn aside. Five times this faithful pastor, Paul, or some say maybe Apollos, some give some other names. But this faithful pastor exhorts them not to give up. In the second chapter of this wonderful letter, we, we hear the words, don't drift away. Don't drift away from what Jesus has given you. In chapter 3, we read the words, don't harden your hearts. Don't let that heart of love for Jesus grow cold and callous and hard. Chapter 5, they're warned not to fall away. And, and the implication clearly given is that some of them are falling away turning away because they've just never grown up in their faith. They've stayed immature. Chapter 10, what I've just read, teaches us to persevere in the will of God. Chapter 12 comes back again with the closing words of the letter, encouraging those early believers not to turn away from the one who, who wants them and warns them who is now sitting in heaven. As one Bible teacher writes about this letter and to the audience of this letter, he says, there are people poised for retreat. The challenge was becoming difficult. And so their pastor writes this letter to them, speaking into their fear and their despair, and he warns them. He encourages them. He reminds them of their faithful determination that sustained them in the past and encourages them to hold on and to keep going and to continue living faithful to God in these days. (coughs) Excuse me. Most of all, he points them to Jesus. He calls Jesus their great high priest. That makes sense. Jewish people looking for a Messiah. Jewish people who had always turned to their priests to be able to access God. And he tells them about this wonderful Savior, reminding them again of the one to whom they had given their lives. 
He begins the letter with such powerful words. In chapter 1, he says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and he lifts up for them again the picture of Jesus, the one whom they had followed, the one whom they had given their life to, and now in their troubled days, in days of despair and discouragement when they were ready to give up, the pastor points them back to Jesus. He encourages them to hear from him. You see, they had the promise of God. They knew heaven was coming. But they were in this waiting time, what what maybe could be called a messy middle. You know, that middle between we've accepted Jesus, we're going to go to heaven with Jesus. And sometimes that middle part just gets really messy, and it was for them because the cost of their faith was high. The question was, what would they do in the meantime? What would they do in this time between finding Jesus, giving their life to him, and the time when they would be with him forever? Now, you might ask, how could people who had waited so long and known so clearly that Jesus was their Messiah, how could they be at this place of getting ready to give up? Well, if you think about it, it's not so hard. Many of us could even look at our own lives and realize that there have been times for some, not all, but some, when we've wondered, is it worth it to keep going? Is it worth it to keep living for Jesus? Am I paying too high a cost? Am I making too much of a sacrifice? How could that happen? And so here are these people to whom this letter is written, encouraging them, begging them, to be faithful in the meantime. Bryant McGill is a well-known name these days. He's a social media guru and uh, has appeared on all kinds of television shows and is quoted often. I don't know anything about him in terms of his faith. I just know he's a person that people in our society are listening to. And here's one of the things that he says. The number one skill in life is not giving up. The number one skill in life is not giving up. That's a message that this writer was trying to give to those early Jewish Christians. That it wasn't time to give up. It was time to hold on. And he draws three encouragements for living in the meantime. They all begin with the word let us. And it depends on which translation you read, how many of those little phrases are let us. And he he continues in this passage in in Hebrews 10. The NIV that I read from this morning says three times let us. But if if, if I read it from this NIV that I bought in about 1978, that, that phrase let us appears five times. So it just depends on how you think about it and how you structure the sentences. But there were encouragements here to let us. And the first one, uh, you'll remember, says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. 
Draw near to God. You see, the pastor was aware that the root of their problem was that they were moving farther and farther away from God. He was less on their minds. They were think about him less. They, they were increasingly negligent in the disciplines that would keep their relationship with God alive. And their relationship to him was growing cold. And so he says, let us draw near. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, it's always the basic, simple things that need to be revived when we're discouraged. It's the basic and simple things that we always have to get back to when, when the Scripture, when God himself invites us to draw near. It's those basic and simple things that seem to disappear when uh, times get hard, life gets challenging. We spend less time with God, less time reading the Bible. We spend less time bowing in prayer. There's less attention given to the voice of God. And yet all of these things are the things that keep us close to him. Christian writer Tim Challies reflects on this when he writes, When my love for the Lord begins to grow cold, I will almost always find that I have not been spending time with him, time in his word. When I'm not spending time with him in his word, I will find that my love has grown cold or lukewarm at least. And I think about the people who first read this letter. And and here's their pastor encouraging them, draw near to God. Well, the implication is pretty clear, isn't it? They weren't close enough to him. Maybe they weren't any farther away, but they certainly weren't close enough for the challenges that they were facing and that they needed to be moving closer to God. Now, if you could think about your life today and, and just you know, do a, a little quick survey of yourself for your own use, nobody else to see, nobody else to think about, nobody else to even hear about, but, but where are you today in your relationship to God? Are you moving closer to him? Growing more in love with him? Are you listening more often for his voice? Or, or is he a, a passing, fleeting, a uh, couple of times a week you set aside to spend a little time with him? How are you doing? If you were to put it on a scale, 1 to 10, or 1 to 100, 10 being close, the high number being close, the 1 being far away, where are you today? And more importantly, which direction are you drifting? Are you moving closer or falling farther away? This great pastor who gives us these words today says, draw near to God. Come close to him. Let us draw near. I think that's an encouragement for all of us today. There's so many crazy things happening in our world, and uh, every time we gather together, I end up in a couple of conversations with, with you, uh, different ones and different days, different times, but conversations about how crazy the world is around us and what's happening and what's going on. And yet, that's a reminder that in these challenging days, we need to draw near to God. The second, let us. 
Let us hold unswervingly. Unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. You see, faithfulness is a decision. It's as simple as that. It's a decision. Far too often we think about faithfulness and and think about feelings, blessings. We think about whether things are going well or not with our relationship with God and and whether, whether God is giving us what we want or not whether we're finding what we expect or not. And so we, we make our decision about faithfulness based on how we feel. And yet, really, it's not that at all. It's an act of the will. It's a decision to be faithful to God, no matter what. And so these folks who first heard this, this sermon, this letter, were being encouraged to hold unswervingly to the hope they profess. It's a decision. 35 days from now, Linda and I will celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. I don't know how we've gotten that big a number going in such a short time. It doesn't seem that long to me. But it is. And it's been a while. But I remember clearly, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for my wife, I'm speaking for myself, I remember clearly that when we made the decision to get married, it was for me a lifetime decision. I loved her. I cared about her. I wanted to be with her. I had all of the the feelings that a young adult will have as they think about marriage. And yet, she was my best friend, my number one supporter. She still is. But in the end, that was simply a decision. That when we entered marriage, for me, there was never a thought of, what if we have a problem? What if we have a challenge? What if things don't go the way I think they'll go? I I never thought about those things. I never worried about those things. Because I made a decision that she would be my wife for life. Now, we've had all kinds of things happen in life, just as you have. There have been lots of ups, there have been lots of downs, there have been lots of times of harmony and agreement, and there have been more than our fair share of times when we were in disagreement (laughs) and not in harmony with decisions and directions and all of the things that go on in spending a lifetime together. But the bottom line of it, we made a decision. I made a decision. That's what holding unswervingly means. That we make a decision to follow God, to live for him, and we're going to hold on to that unswervingly all the days of our life. Faith in Jesus is that. It's to make a decision to live for him no matter what comes. I am his. I remember as a boy, we would often go to my aunt and uncle's place. They had a really small farm. And for a period of time, they had a a mule. And we would get that mule out of the the corral where where it spent its life. And we'd put a halter on. Actually, my uncle would put the halter because we weren't big enough to reach up there and do that on this big old mule. And we'd crawl up on this bareback mule and and think we're going to have a nice ride. 
Have you ever tried to ride a mule? Let, let me tell you my experience. My experience was that when you got up there on him and, and you would urge him to go, he wouldn't go. He just would stand there. It's kind of like, you silly thing on my back, what do you think you're doing? And so we would urge him more aggressively, more aggressively, and kick our heels into his sides. And, and finally, at some point, we would get him to go. And you know what happened then? We wanted him to stop. Because <laughs> he would go so fast and so hard that we couldn't hold on to him. <coughs> and he would, it wasn't that he was trying to throw us off. He just ran and galloped, and we were young and not that strong and didn't have a saddle to hold on to. And we would grab his reins and yank back as hard as we could. And just as stubborn as he was to get him to start, he was even more stubborn to get him to stop once you got him going. And you had to hold on for all you were worth. Well, sometimes life is like that. You find yourself on a ride that becomes bumpy and challenging and difficult, and you have to hold on for all you're worth. And, and you think, maybe it'll be just easier to jump off. But then you realize that won't be easier at all. You have to hold on unswervingly. No matter the challenge, no matter the difficulty, no matter what comes, you have to hold on. The third, let us spur one another. Let us spur one another on. Let us consider, the scripture says, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Two things to spur us on. Encourage one another, Meet together. Meet together, encourage one another. Probably all of you know that Linda and I just got back from a great vacation. We visited uh, a number of different churches while we were in Paris and Amsterdam. Beautiful buildings. I call them churches loosely because really a church isn't a building, but we've come to call the buildings where we worship churches. We went in these beautiful places that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. We were in awe of the architecture, in awe of the stained glass windows. And yet, as we looked at these churches and walked through them and, and saw all that was there, there was an increasing sadness in my heart as I realized that these places, all of them with the exception of one that we went in, really are no longer places of worship. They're just museums. Why? Because people gave up meeting together. People who had made decisions for Christ stopped gathering and worshiping, stopped living for him, stopped sharing their faith with others. And that attendance decline that has happened in Europe, many are predicting and saying is happening here now. I don't know that our you know, if we continue on the path that, that we've been on for a couple of decades, I don't think our, our buildings are going to become museums. They, they aren't the same kind of buildings that were built those hundreds of years ago. But they're going to be empty unless there's a shift, a change. And a part of that shift and change is for the church, for us, 
to spur one another on toward love and good deeds and to not give up meeting together and to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. What do you do in that messy middle? Well, you you stay faithful. You draw near to God. You hold on no matter what life brings. And you find ways to encourage one another to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I I think the genius of what Jesus created when he created the church is that he created us to need each other. We, We don't do well navigating this life when we try to do it alone. We need each other. Our words to each other need to be encouragement and love and grace. They need to be hopeful and hope filled. Pastor David Holt, I don't know him personally, but, but I was reading one of his articles, and he talked about this idea of how do we overcome when we're ready to give up, and here's, here's his phrase, hang around with a hot heart. In other words, be careful who you're with. Hang around with people who, who have a heart that's in love with God, that's fully devoted to him, that's, that's hot with the things of God. And that rubs off. And I think that's the picture that the scripture is painting for us. Spur one another onto love and good deeds. Encourage one another. It's about making sure that our hot hearts are hot for God and that that heat is shared with others so that they can be encouraged to live for him. Let's encourage one another. So what do we do in the meantime? We do the same thing that they did in the first century. That time between when we meet Jesus and that time when we're with him forever, what do we do? We draw near to God. We hold on unswervingly to the hope that we are given. We spur one another on. And the scripture says we will receive the promise. We receive the promise. That's my hope for you. That no matter what challenges life bring your way, that your walk in faith in Christ will continue strong. That you will be growing closer to him, more in love with him, giving your life more fully to him. That you'll make a decision to hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Let's pray together. Jesus, there have been days when many in this room have wondered, have thought, have questioned, have maybe even doubted. It happens to most of us at some point or another along the way. We ask you to help us when those days come that we will hold on to the great hope that you have given us. Thank you for the encouragement of a pastor to his people written hundreds of years ago, but just as relevant to us today, that we can find that faithfulness in the meantime will secure the reward we desire. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.